First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. And if you didn't happen to bring a Bible, please take the Bible that's just in front of you on the pew, and you can turn to page 1,442. So we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Humility is not a popular virtue in the modern world, as far as I can tell. I don't hear it touted on the radio talk shows. I don't see it listed on the core values that we want to impart in our high schools. I don't, I don't hear about it coming through valedictorian high school speeches. I don't think it's part of the curriculum in uh, diversity training seminars. Um, I walk into B. Dalton's and into uh, Barnes & Noble, and I go to those huge self-help sections, psychology sections, and you look in vain for a book on humility. It's not in the wind. It's not part of the striving. It's not popular. Now, the reason for that, I think, is not hard to find. Humility only thrives where God thrives. Humility is only big where God is big. When God goes, humility goes. Humility is like the shadow of God. It just kind of follows him around like this. And if God is out of the picture, the shadow goes out of the picture. Uh, September 12, this past, there was a guest editorial in the Star Tribune. I don't think it represents everybody on the Star Tribune, but it represents the writer and it represents probably a significant number of people for whom he was writing. And it said, there are some who naively cling to the nostalgic memory of God. This is kind of a old-fashioned memory. The average churchgoer takes a few hours out of the week to experience the sacred, but the rest of the time he's immersed in a society that no longer acknowledges God as an omniscient and omnipotent force to be loved and worshipped. Today we are too sophisticated for God. We can stand on our own. We are prepared and ready to choose and define our own existence. When God goes, humility goes. When God, the true God, goes, the runner-up God arrives. Who's the runner-up God in the universe? You are. God said you were. He created you just a little bit lower than God. So when we get rid of God, there's only one real live candidate left on the earth for who God is, and that's me. And that's not humility, that's by definition pride. That's the arch form of pride. 
The best way to cause pride to flourish is get God off the scene. He is pretty much off the scene in the public life of America today. And therefore, so is humility. Which means that this text here that we just read is, is utterly out of step with the atmosphere in which we live, in which we breathe. And it's uh, therefore very necessary. And we as a church and as individuals here, guests and regular attenders and members, if we are going to be Christian, and if we're going to be salt and light in a world like that, this text has to come true for us. And I'd like to just pause right here and ask God to make it true as we unfold it. So let's pray. I ask you, Holy Spirit, to draw near now on this congregation. I'm sure that in a room this large, there are people who do not enjoy a restful, humble, saving faith in Jesus Christ, the King of the universe. And I would just eagerly ask that you would stir all of us right now to cast ourselves more fully upon Christ for the forgiveness for our sins and for the hope of everlasting life. And to look up to the mighty hand of God that is over us and humble ourselves under it and walk in the care that is in it. Mighty God, work in these next few minutes, I pray. Through Christ I ask it. Amen. The the main point of this text is real clear. It's expressed three times. Verse 5, younger men, be subject, that is, humble yourselves under your elders. Second, again in verse 5, all of you, not just younger ones, all of you clothe yourselves, wear it like a garment, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Number three, verse 6, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So it's no doubt what the main exhortation of this text is. It's Christians, be humble people. Now, if that's the main point, if that's a a defining characteristic of Christianity and of being a Christian is to be like that, then we need incentives and enablements and encouragements To be that way. And there are four of them in this text. Let me just list them for you. And let them sink in and begin to have their humbling effect. Number one, verse five, God is opposed to the proud. Now stop and think about that for just a second. If you put out of your mind now all the things that the world thinks is bad, who don't know God... And ask, what is really the worst thing in the universe? What would be the worst thing in the universe? The answer, I think, is having an almighty God against you. There's no place to go. There's nothing to do if you wake up in the morning and you say, he's against me. He's opposed to me. It's all over. And this is a warning. God opposes the proud in their pride. Secondly, God gives grace to the humble. You say, what's the worst thing? And that's having God against you. The best thing in the universe would be to have an all-powerful, all-wise, 
all-caring God for me, showing grace to me, being kind to me. And that's what's promised to the humble here. Now, mark something carefully here. Don't conclude from that that humility is a virtue that you perform in order to earn grace. Somebody might take that sentence and distort it like that. Oh, he gives grace to the humble. So humble is the thing I do to pay God to get my wages back. Here's a, here's a better way to describe what that's saying. Humility is not a virtue to be performed to earn wages. Humility is a emptiness to be admitted which receives help. That's a very different way of talking. Humility is an emptiness to be confessed which then receives in its emptiness grace. Remember what Jesus said, blessed are the what in heart? Tell me. The poor. Or poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor, the empty. The people who say, if it's up to me to earn grace, I'm I'm a goner and there is no such thing as grace. So grace is given to the humble, not because the humble earn grace, but because the humble are empty and receive grace. They know it's their only hope. Third incentive in verse six. There's a mighty hand. God's mighty hand over us. And that hand is there to exalt the humble, not to crush them. See that humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due season, proper time. So there's a mighty hand up there, and when we look up at it, if we're proud, we have to fear it. It's coming down on us. The Bible says he's opposed to the proud. But if we're humble, empty, open, needy, confessing that, and we look up, we don't see it that way at all. It's a hand protecting. It's a hand on the way down to lift up. And the fourth incentive is in verse 7. That mighty hand, he says, cares for us. Casting all your anxiety on him because he, God, cares for you. And I would rather have God caring for me than opposing me, wouldn't you? And therefore, humility rises in its necessity to the degree that you need and long for that. So summing up the incentives to be this way, if you're proud, God is against you in your pride. If you're humble, he gives grace. He exalts and he cares for you. So the basic message of this text is real simple, real plain. Let's be a humble people under God toward each other. And let's let his promises of care and of exalting and of grace give us the incentive to move away from his opposition and into his care. Now, at that point, I asked myself in my thinking and preparation What could I say next that would take this simple truth and press it home on my heart so that it takes a deeper root here and press it on your consciences so that it wouldn't just kind of lay on top and slip off as you leave this room this morning, but would sink in and you'd carry it all afternoon. It would make a difference in the week. 
And what I came up with as I reflected on this passage was two questions to be answered. One is, what is pride? What is it? A lot of people use it, a lot of people talk about it, but what is it? And it's opposite humility. What are they? And the second question is, what's the relationship between humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and casting our anxieties on God? What's the connection there? The title of this sermon I put in the bulletin, Are You Humble Enough to Be Carefree? Which shows you that I think there's a connection between humility and casting all your anxieties on God. And I want to try to answer that question from the text. Let's start with that question and then jump to the first question and then jump back to the second one and end there. Because I think that's the, the really practical, urgent one for us in our daily lives. What is the relationship between verses 6 and 7? That's the key question. Or humility and being carefree or casting all your anxieties on the Lord. Now here, if you've got a New American Standard version, that is the one that's in the pew there, you can see this a lot more clearly than if you have most every other version because almost all the versions start a new sentence at 7, but there isn't a new sentence at 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting, there's a participle there, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. In other words, these aren't simply two separate sentences. You memorize the one and you enjoy it. You memorize the other one and you enjoy it. There's a main sentence, and then there's a, what we call in grammar, I bless God for my grammar teacher in the seventh grade, a subordinate clause. It's like, uh, drive carefully, keeping your eyes on the road, or eat politely, chewing with your mouth closed, or be generous, inviting someone over for Thanksgiving. And each of those three Sentences. The second clause tells you how the first one is done. All right. That's the kind of grammar we've got here. Grammar. All the kids are in Sunday school. I celebrated grammar in the first service. I won't push it as hard this time. But if, if you have misgivings about the importance of grammar, it is so valuable. It is so valuable to know what a subordinate clause is. You don't have to name it. You don't have to know the name of it. You just have to know when you're reading along and it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting your anxieties on him. You say, aha, one of the ways then to be humble is to cast my anxieties on the Lord. And that's what really arrested me in thinking about this text, which implies something really shocking, a hindrance. To peace and restfulness and casting your anxieties on the Lord, a hindrance to that is pride. Or another way to say it is, if you're worried about the future, it might be because you're proud, proud person. Sounds strange. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes. How can a, a feeling like pride be the cause of something as trembling as anxiety? They look like opposites. When you're trembling about the future, you feel weak and vulnerable. When you're proud, you're supposed to feel sufficient, 
So how, how can you say that anxiety is a form of pride? And casting your anxieties on the Lord is a form of humility. We're coming back to that. The other question that will help us answer that is, what is pride? What is it? And what I want to do, just very quickly, I'll go so fast you won't have time to look up these texts, but I'll just bump through these quickly and try to give us a congregational sense and flavor of what pride is by just working our way through the Bible and pointing out ten things. Just name them as we go. Number one, pride is self-satisfaction. I get this from Hosea 13, 4. I have been the Lord your God, says the Lord, since the land of Egypt. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. And therefore, they forgot me. So there's an illustration of how when the satisfaction comes from the Lord, we can actually forget the Lord and be self-satisfied. That's pride. Second, pride is self-sufficiency or self-reliance. I get this from Deuteronomy 8, 11 following, where Moses is speaking to the people and says, now when you get across the Jordan into the promised land there, something real dangerous is going to happen. Watch out for it. And this is what he says. Beware, lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply, then your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and you say in your heart, my power and my wealth have gotten and my strength have gotten me all this wealth. Self-sufficiency. I did it. Forget God. I got this wealth. When we ought to be saying, God enabled me. God graciously gave it. Self-sufficiency. Third, pride considers itself above instruction. Jeremiah 13, 9. God says to the people in Judah, I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words. So one of the marks of pride is when God speaks and exhorts and chastises, we don't listen. So no. When God exerts his authority, we just consider ourselves above instruction. Fourth, pride is therefore insubordinate. Psalm 119.21 says, Thou dost rebuke the arrogant, the cursed who wander from thy commandments. So when God stands forth out of heaven through his word and he speaks something about sex, something about money, something about life and hope, and if we don't like it, we just wander away from it. So you don't have any right to tell me what to do. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, right at the beginning of our sinful plight, and that's what all of us do apart from God's grace. Five, pride takes credit for what God alone does. Remember that wonderful, terrible story in Daniel 4 about Nebuchadnezzar who grew fingernails like claws on an eagle and hair like feathers and went out and grazed like an ox because he lost his mind. Why did that happen? Here's what it says in Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for my glory and majesty? That's a dangerous way to talk. 
And while he was yet speaking and the words were in his mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty has been removed from you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And he ate grass like an ox for seven times. And then God touched him. And listen to this confession. I, Nebuchadnezzar, now praise and exalt and honor the King of Heaven. For all his works are true and his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So God did it. God has a way of doing it. He will do it. Six. Pride exults in being made much of Jesus to the to the leaders in Jerusalem. They love the place of honor at the banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues, respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called by men. Rabbi, doctor, president, chairman. Seven, pride aspires to the place of God. We're reading in our devotions this week as a family, the book of Acts. And this week we got to chapter 12, and that's why I thought of this text, where Herod aspires to the place of God, and God opposes him dreadfully. It goes like this, Acts 12. And on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an oration And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. God opposes the proud. Eight, pride opposes the very existence of God. Psalm 10:4 The wicked in haughtiness in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek God all his thoughts are there is no God the, the only atmosphere in which humility is asphyxiated and pride thrives is when you get rid of God There's a desperate attempt to get rid of God wherever pride is in the ascendancy. It's like the Nazis saying the final solution to this humility thing and getting rid of it, the final solution is to get rid of God. And many have devoted their lives to getting him out of life. Number nine, pride refuses to trust in God, therefore. Very simple, that obvious, that's obvious. Proverbs 28, 25 contrasts arrogance and trust like this. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. The opposite of arrogance is not just humility, it's trust. Now why is that? It's very simple. Because trust is a very lowly demeanor. It's a way of saying, I don't have what I need in here. I have to trust somebody else to give it to me. I don't have the resources in here to save me, to forgive me, to reconcile me to God, to lead my life in a holy way, to to be what my family needs for me, to be what a church needs for me. I do not have the resources. I cannot do it. And you look around for an answer and God says, 
I have a mighty hand, and I promise you I will care for you. Trust me. Pride can't do it. Pride cannot do it. It is self-sufficient, and it is self-satisfied, and it just cringes at the prospect of saying, I am bankrupt and helpless. I need another to save me and help me and lead me and guide me and hold me up and strengthen me. Everything comes from outside me. Only humility can talk that way. And therefore, trust in the promise of God is the expression of humility. Now, that is very close to explaining our question about the relationship between 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. The contrast between humility or the connection between humility and casting your anxieties on the Lord. There are two possibilities if you don't trust God and you face an uncertain future. What do you think they are? Two possibilities. If you face an uncertain future, which everybody does, and you don't trust God for that future, you can do two things. You can reach inside and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and say, I will be heroic in my approach to the future and valiant and strong and make as much happen in this world by my power as I possibly can and throw myself into the jaws of the future, come what may. And you know, people can accomplish a lot like that. They really can. It's a fool's game because they have no control over their ultimate destiny. They're going to die. They don't know whether they're going to make it home today before those ticker stops and before somebody smashes into them on the road. It's a fool's game. You can play it. The stakes are high like Russian roulette. You can win over and over again. But one of these times, you lose. And ultimately, you lose. Here's the other alternative. If you don't have the chutzpah to do that, then over here, you can be anxious all the time. That's the other alternative. If you don't trust God, you can either be gutsy and strong-willed and throw yourself into the future, or you can be anxious all the time about the future. Which means that this anxiety over here is flowing from the same pride that this pushiness is over here, which is what verses 6 and 7 are all about. So my tenth point about pride is this. Pride is often anxious about the future. Pride is often anxious about the future. Let me give you a text for that besides the one in our verse here. Isaiah 51, 12. This is amazing. God says to anxious Israel these words. I, even I, says the Lord, am he who comforts you. Who are you to be afraid of man who dies and have forgotten the Lord? Isn't that strange? Who are you to be afraid Who do you think you are to be anxious? Clearly teaching anxiety is pride. Who do you think you are to be afraid of man who dies? Isn't that stunning? Now go back to verses 6 and 7 and see that that's exactly what these verses say. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him. The humblest thing you can do this morning is to be carefree in God. The humblest thing you can do is to say, God, I believe the promise that you care for me. 
I believe that you exalt the lowly. I believe that you oppose the proud. I believe your mighty hand is over me, ready to care for me and lift me up. And I, on the basis of your power, your strength, your integrity, will walk out of here without being anxious. That's humble. That's the opposite of pride. Whereas if you say now, I'm going to walk out of here anxious. It's blackballing God. It's saying the promise of verse 7 here is not reliable. And that's an arrogant thing to say. So here's the way I want us to fight this fight this week. We close with this. When the heart, you wake up in the morning, and it happens to me about every day, the heart starts to rise with anxiety about one thing or the other. You preach to yourself. You say, who do you think you are, heart? To fear this day. Who do you think you are, John Piper, to be anxious about this day? And that's just quoting Isaiah 51, 12. Who do you think you are to be anxious? And now here's here's the clincher to be anxious and not trust the word of the living God as though it were untrue and God were unreliable. Who do you think you are to say that to God? I mean, big things are at stake in anxiety. So let's fight the fight of faith and look at the promises of 1 Peter 5, 7. Memorize that promise. He cares for you, so cast your anxieties on him. He loves to bear them for you. Don't be so proud as to say God doesn't keep his word. But rather humble yourself under him and preach that message to yourself every day. Let's pray. Lord, please take it from words to reality now, I pray. Lift anxiety through faith. Oh, holy God, right now, in hearts that have none or little faith, create it. Strengthen it. Draw people to the wonderful, mighty, caring, exalting hand of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.